Section 2 of Sand Doom. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Sand Doom by Murray Leinster. Section 2. The warlock rolled on in her newly established orbit about Zosa II. The landing boat was aground, having removed the two passengers. It would come back. Nobody on the ship wanted to stay aground because they knew the conditions and the situation below, unbearable heat and the complete absence of hope. But nobody had anything to do. The ship had been maintained in standard operating condition during its two months' voyage from Trent to here. No repairs or overhaulings were needed. There was no maintenance work to speak of. There would be only standby watches until something happened. There would be nothing to do on those watches. There would be off-watch time for twenty-one out of every twenty-four hours, and no purposeful activity to fill even half an hour of it. In a matter of, probably, years, the warlock should receive aid. She might be towed out of her orbit to space in which the lauder drive could function, or the crew might simply be taken off. But meanwhile those on board were as completely frustrated as the colony. They could not do anything at all to help themselves. In one fashion the crewmen were worse off than the colonists. The colonists had at least the colorful prospect of death before them. They could prepare for it in their several ways. But the members of the warlock's crew had nothing ahead but tedium. The skipper faced the future with extreme, grim distaste. The ride to the colony was torment. Aletha rode behind her cousin on the saddle-blanket, and, apparently, suffered little if at all. But Boardman could only ride in the ground-car's cargo space, along with the sack of mail from the ship. The ground was unbelievably rough and the jolting intolerable. The heat was literally murderous. In the metal cargo space the temperature reached a hundred and sixty degrees in the sunshine and given enough time, food will cook in no more heat than that. Of course, a man has been known to enter an oven and stay there while a roast was cooked, and to come out alive. But the oven wasn't throwing him violently about or bringing sun-heated, blue-white sun-heated metal to press his heat-suit against him. The suit did make survival possible, but that was all. The contents of its canteens gave out just before arrival and for a short time Boardman had only sweat for his suit to work with. It kept him alive by forced ventilation, but he arrived in a state of collapse. He drank the iced salt water they gave him and went to bed. He'd get back his strength with a proper sodium level in his blood, but he slept for twelve hours straight. When he got up he was physically normal again, but abysmally ashamed. It did no good to remind himself that Zosa II was rated Minimum Comfort Class D, a blue-white sun and a mean temperature of one hundred and ten degrees. Africans could take such a climate, with night-relief quarters. Amaranths could do steel construction work in the open, protected only by insulated shoes and gloves. But Boardman could not venture out of doors except in a heat-suit. He couldn't stay long then. It was not a weakness. It was a matter of genetics. But he was ashamed. 
Aletha nodded to him when he found the project engineer's office. It occupied one of the hulls in which colony establishment materials had been lowered by rocket power. There were forty of the hulls, and they had been emptied and arranged for intercommunication in three separate communities, so that an individual could change his quarters and ordinary associates from time to time, and colony fever, frantic irritation with one's companions, was minimized. Aletha sat at a desk, busily making notes from a loose-leaf volume before her. The wall behind the desk was fairly lined with similar volumes. "'I made a spectacle of myself,' said Boardman bitterly. "'Not at all,' Aletha assured him. "'It could happen to anybody. I wouldn't do too well on Timbuk.' There was no answer to that. Timbuk was essentially a jungle planet, barely emerging from the Carboniferous stage. Its colonists thrived because their ancestors had lived on the shores of the Gulf of Guinea on Earth. But Anglos did not find its climate healthful, nor would many other races. Amerins died there quicker than most. "'Ralph's on the way here now,' added Aletha. He and Dr. Chuka were out picking a place to leave the records. The sand dunes here are terrible, you know. When an explorer ship does come to find out what's happened to us, these buildings could be covered up completely. Any place could be. It isn't easy to pick a record cache that's quite sure to be found." When, said Boardman skeptically, there's nobody left alive to point it out, is that it? That's it agreed Aletha. It's pretty bad all around. I didn't plan to die just yet." Her voice was perfectly normal. Boardman snorted. As a senior colonial survey officer he'd been around. But he'd never yet known a human colony to be extinguished when it was properly equipped and after a proper pre-settlement survey. He'd seen panic, but never real cause for a matter-of-fact acceptance of doom. There was a clanking noise outside the hulk which was the project engineer's headquarters. Boardman couldn't see clearly through the filtered ports. He reached over and opened a door. The brightness outside struck his eyes like a blow. He blinked them shut instantly and turned away. But he'd seen a glistening, cater-wheel ground-car stopping not far from the doorway. He stood wiping tears from his light-dazzled eyes as footsteps sounded outside. Aletha's cousin came in, followed by a huge man with remarkably dark skin. The dark man wore eyeglasses with a curiously thick, cork-like nosepiece to insulate the necessary metal of the frame from his skin. It would blister if it touched bare flesh. "'This is Dr. Chuka,' said Redfeather pleasantly. "'Mr. Boardman, Dr. Chuka's the director of mining and mineralogy here.' Boardman shook hands with the ebony-skinned man. He grinned, showing startlingly white teeth. Then he began to shiver. "'It's like a freeze-box in here,' he said in a deep voice. "'I'll get a robe and be with you.' He vanished through a doorway, his teeth chattering audibly. Aletha's cousin took half a dozen deliberate deep breaths and grimaced. "'I could shiver myself,' he admitted. But Chuka's really acclimated to Zosa. He was raised on Timbuk. Boardman said curtly, 
I'm sorry I collapsed on landing. It won't happen again. I came here to do a degree of completion survey that should open the colony to normal commerce, let the colonists' families move in, tourists, and so on. But I was landed by boat instead of normally, and I am told the colony is doomed. I would like an official statement of the degree of completion of the colony's facilities, and an explanation of the unusual points I have just mentioned." The Indian blinked at him. Then he smiled faintly. The dark man came back, zipping up an indoor warmth garment. Redfeather dryly brought him up to date by repeating what Boardman had just said. Chuka grinned and sprawled comfortably in a chair. "'I'd say,' he remarked humorously in that astonishingly deep-toned voice of his, "'Sand got in our hair. And our colony. And the landing grid. There's a lot of sand on Zosa. Wouldn't you say that was the trouble?' The Indian said with elaborate gravity, "'Of course wind had something to do with it.' Boardman fumed. "'I think you know,' he said fretfully, "'that, as a senior colonial survey officer, I have authority to give any orders needed for my work. I give one now. I want to see the landing grid, if it is still standing. I take it that it didn't fall down?' Redfeather flushed beneath the bronze pigment of his skin. It would be hard to offend a steel man more than to suggest that his work did not stand up. "'I assure you,' he said politely, "'that it did not fall down.' "'Your estimate of its degree of completion?' Eighty percent,' said Redfeather formally. "'You've stopped work on it?' "'Work on it has been stopped,' agreed the Indian. Even though the colony can receive no more supplies until it is completed? Just so, said Redfeather, without expression. Then I issue a formal order that I be taken to the landing grid site immediately, said Boardman angrily. I want to see what sort of incompetence is responsible. Will you arrange it at once? Redfeather said in a completely emotionless voice, you want to see the site of the landing grid. Very good. Immediately. He turned and walked out into the incredible, blinding sunshine. Boardman blinked at the momentary blast of light and then began to pace up and down the office. He fumed. He was still ashamed of his collapse from the heat during the travel from the landed rocket boat to the colony. Therefore, he was touchy and irritable but the order he had given was strictly justifiable. He heard a small noise. He whirled. Dr. Chuka, huge and black and spectacled, rocked back and forth in his seat, suppressing laughter. "'Now what the devil does that mean?' demanded Boardman suspiciously. "'It certainly isn't ridiculous to ask to see the structure on which the life of the colony finally depends.' "'Not ridiculous,' said Dr. Chuka. It's hilarious!" He boomed laughter in the office with the rounded ceiling of a remade robot hull. Aletha smiled with him, though her eyes were grave. "'You'd better put on a heat-suit,' she said to Boardman. He fumed again, tempted to defy all common sense because its dictates were not the same for everybody. But he marched away, back to the cubbyhole in which he had awakened. 
Angrily, he donned the heat-suit that had not protected him adequately before, but had certainly saved his life. He filled the canteens topping full. He suspected he hadn't done so the last time. He went back to the project engineer's office with a feeling of being burdened and absurd. Out a filter window, he saw that men with skins as dark as Dr. Chuka's were at work on a ground car. They were equipping it with a sunshade and curious shields like wings. Somebody pushed a sort of cater-wheel hand-truck toward it. They put big, heavy tanks into its cargo space. Dr. Chuka had disappeared, but Aletha was back at work making notes from the loose-leaf volume on her desk. "'May I ask,' asked Boardman with some irony, "'what your work happens to be just now?' She looked up. "'I thought you knew,' she said in surprise. "'I'm here for the Amerind Historical Society. I can certify coups. I'm taking coup records for the Society.' They'll go in the record case Ralph and Dr. Chuka are arranging, so no matter what happens to the colony, the record of the coups won't be lost." "'Coups?' demanded Boardman. He knew that Amerins painted feathers on the key posts of steel structures they'd built. And he knew that the posting of such coup marks was a cherished privilege, and undoubtedly a survival or revival of some American Indian tradition back on earth but he did not know what they meant. Coos, repeated Aletha, matter-of-factly. Ralph wears three eagle feathers. You saw them. He has three coos. Pinions, too. He built the landing grids on Norlath, and—oh, you don't know!" I don't, admitted Boardman, his temper not of the best because of what seemed unnecessary condescensions on Zosa too. Aletha looked surprised. "'In the old days,' she explained, "'back on earth, if a man scalped an enemy, he counted coup. The first to strike an enemy in a battle counted coup, too. A lesser one. Nowadays a man counts coups for different things, but Ralph's three eagle-feathers mean he's entitled to as much respect as a warrior in the old days, who, three separate times, had killed and scalped an enemy warrior in the middle of his own camp and he is, too." Boardman grunted. "'Barbarous, I'd say.' "'If you like,' said Aletha. "'But it's something to be proud of. And one doesn't count coup for making a lot of money.' Then she paused and said curtly, "'The word snobbish fits it better than barbarous. We are snobs. But when the head of a clan stands up in council in the big teepee on Olganka, representing his clan, and men have to carry the ends of the feather headdress with all the coups the members of his clan have earned, why one is proud to belong to that clan." She added defiantly, "'Even watching it on a vision screen!' Dr. Chuko opened the outer door. Blinding light poured in. He did not enter, and his body glistened with sweat. "'Ready for you, Mr. Boardman.' Boardman adjusted his goggles and turned on the motors of his heat-suit. He went out the door. The heat and light outside were oppressive. He darkened the goggles again and made his way heavily to the waiting, now-shaded ground-car. He noted that there were other changes beside the sunshade. The cover-deck of the cargo space was gone, 
and there were cylindrical riding-seats like saddles in the back. The odd lower shields reached out sidewise from the body, barely above the cater-wheels. He could not make out their purpose, and irritably failed to ask. "'Already,' said Redfeather coldly. "'Dr. Chook is coming with us. If you'll get in here, please.' Boardman climbed awkwardly into the box-like back of the car. He bestrode one of the cylindrical arrangements. With a saddle on it, it would undoubtedly have been a comfortable way to cover impossibly bad terrain in a mechanical carrier. He waited. About him there were the squatty hulls of the space barges which had been towed here by a colony ship, each one once equipped with rockets for landing. Emptied of their cargoes, they had been huddled together into three separate adjoining communities. There were the separate living quarters and mess halls and recreation rooms for each, and any colonist lived in the community of his choice and shifted at pleasure, or visited or remained solitary. For mental health, a man has to be assured of his free will, and over-regimentation is deadly in any society. With men psychologically suited to colonize, it is fatal. Above, but at a distance now, there was a monstrous scarp of mountains, colored and glaring in unnatural tints. Immediately about there was raw rock. But it was peculiarly smooth, as if sand-grains had rubbed over it for uncountable eons and carefully worn away every trace of unevenness. Half a mile to the left, dunes began and went away to the horizon. The nearer ones were small, but they gained in size with distance from the mountains, which evidently affected the surface winds hereabouts, and the edge of seeing was visibly not a straight line. The dunes yonder must be gigantic, but of course on a world the size of ancient earth, and which was waterless save for snow-patches at its poles, the size to which sand-dunes could grow had no limit. The surface of Zosa, too, was a sea of sand, on which islands and small continents of wind-swept rock were merely minor features. Dr. Chuka adjusted a small metal object in his hand. It had a tube dangling from it. He climbed into the cargo space and fastened it to one of the two tanks previously loaded. "'For you,' he told Boardman. "'Those tanks are full of compressed air at rather high pressure, a couple of thousand pounds. Here's a reduction valve with an adiabatic expansion feature, to supply extra air to your heat-suit. It will be pretty cold, expanding from so high a pressure. Bring down the temperature a little more." Boardman again felt humiliated. Chuka and Redfeather, because of their races, were able to move about nine-tenths naked in the open air on this planet, and they thrived. But he needed a special refrigerated costume to endure the heat. More, they provided him with sunshades and refrigerated air that they did not need for themselves. They were thoughtful of him. He was as much out of his element, where they fitted perfectly, as he would have been making a degree of completion survey on an underwater project. He had to wear what was practically a diving suit and use a special air supply to survive. He choked down the irritation his own inadequacy produced. I suppose we can go now," he said as coldly as he could. Aletha's cousin mounted the control saddle, 
though it was no more than a blanket, and Dr. Chuka mounted beside Boardman. The ground car got under way. It headed for the mountains. The smoothness of the rock was deceptive. The cater-wheel car lurched and bumped and swayed and rocked. It rolled and dipped and wallowed. Nobody could have remained in a normal seat on such terrain, but Boardman felt hopelessly undignified riding what amounted to a hobby-horse. Under the sunshade it was infuriatingly like a horse on a carousel. That there were three of them together made it look even more foolish. He stared about him, trying to take his mind from his own absurdity. His goggles made the light endurable, but he felt ashamed. "'Those side-fins,' said Chuka's deep voice pleasantly, "'the bottom ones, make things better for you. The shade overhead cuts off direct sunlight, and they cut off the reflected glare. It would blister your skin even if the sun never touched you directly.' Boardman did not answer. The cater-wheel car went on. It came to a patch of sand, tawny sand, heavily mineralized. There was a dune here. Not a big one for Zosa, too. It was no more than a hundred feet high. But they went up its leeward, steeply slanting side. All the planet seemed to tilt insanely as the cater-wheels spun. They reached the dune's crest, where it tended to curl over and break like a watercomber, and here the wheel struggled with sand precariously ready to fall, and Boardman had a sudden perception of the sands of Zosa too, as the oceans that they really were. The dunes were waves which moved with infinite slowness, but the irresistible force of storm seas. Nothing could resist them. Nothing. End of section 2